Hey, Kareem Sirajuddin here, founder of Nude Human Consulting. The Coffee with Kareem podcast aims to provide Muslims and people of all backgrounds a space to share their life gifts, meet dynamic guests, and enhance the human experience one cup of coffee at a time. Sit back and sip. This is Bob Ali, and you're listening to the Coffee with Kareem podcast. Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. Today I have Baba Ali, a.k.a. Ali Erdekani. He is also the founder of Half Our Deen website and is one of the first Muslim YouTube bloggers. Ali, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. It's it's certainly a pleasure. I've I've seen your content and your activities over the years. It's always been a really nice um, place to get resources for relationship work and uh, reminders about Islamic and cultural sensitivity. Tell us more about uh, your upbringing and your background, first and foremost. Well, I grew up uh, right here in Los Angeles, California. I didn't know anything about Islam until I discovered it around the age of 19 years old. And I... Yeah, I literally became Muslim overnight as soon as I found it. SubhanAllah. So you weren't born into a Muslim family, or you're talking more as kind of a revert uh, experience, rebirth experience type of thing? Well, my family is extremely secular, so they didn't really practice any type of religion. And they were actually shocked when I decided to become Muslim. So I'm still like the black sheep of the family. No so, way. Wow, <laughs> yeah. I never knew that. That's pretty crazy. Wow. So your your family wasn't religious at all. They were very secular, you say. Exactly. They're not religious right now. I mean, I'm, I'm still the black sheep of the family. I have relatives, I may have cousins that may be religious, but my family, generally, if you look at them and look at me, is, is two different things. They're very different from each other. And your family is originally from Iran, is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, so I mean, I know, I mean, I definitely had a lot of Iranian friends growing up, and when they're secular, they're secular, you know? <laughs> so how how did somebody grow up in that type of family being molded by a lot of these ideas? Sometimes there's even, you know, a tension or an opposition to religion, from my experience of, of secular Iranian friends. Um, how did you end up coming to, back, going to Islam when you were raised never to necessarily find any answers or values in it? Yeah, the, the challenge was that my parents came from a land where they were felt like oppressed or prosecuted because under the, under the banner of Islam. So right. they hated the word, they hated the term, they hated anything associated with it. But I never grew up there. I grew up here in America. So I look at myself as an American, not as an Iranian. So as I grew up, I just like every other American, I asked myself typical questions of what's my reason I, I exist, what, what came before me, what comes after me, you know, I, I, what's the purpose of life? So with all these same questions, and I don't care what Islam is or what Christianity is or Judaism is. I have no prejudice against any of these religions. I just want to go search for the truth. And I often ask myself the question, if I told myself if I ever find the truth, I would take it immediately. And I studied different types of uh I t studied like everything from different religions to different ways of life. And then when I found Islam, it was like, it made so much sense. And I took it overnight. SubhanAllah. So do, you did search and, and learn about different religions, even like Wicca religion, right? Yes, I, yes, I did. SubhanAllah. So 
did you feel like you had um i mean obviously persian culture still has islamic you know uh facets in it just by it being so uh embedded so to speak right like even the secular persians i knew it's like they still used water to wash themselves after the bathroom they still had certain you know protocols of adab you know and character which was also rooted in islam um did you think that there was a natural lean towards islam or were there any other religions that also kind of pulled you in and and struck you no, it's actually so embedded into the culture, but it's not nothing to do with religion. For example, I used to hear the word mashallah or inshallah so much by people who are not religious whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. It's weird. <laughs> yeah, you say barakallah. I remember I hear that so often. Instead of hearing the word good or great job, you hear barakallah. And these are the same people who have zero to do with religion. Zero. Absolutely zero. Wow. Wow. It's so embedded into the culture that they don't even know what they're saying. If you ask them, what does Baraka Allah mean? You know what you're saying, the word Allah in your statement. Mm-hmm. It just became just part of the the culture, part of the language. Right, or Khudaf is, you know, God, yeah. God yeah. protect you, God preserve exactly. you. Yeah, it's very interesting, very interesting. Subhanallah. Yeah, I didn't know that. I learned that something new about you today. I didn't know you grew up in a, in a, in a you know pretty secular household, and and you almost um, discovered Islam on your own. So, alhamdulillah, may Allah bless you and your family. Alhamdulillah. That's great. So, take us from there. So, now you've converted to Islam, so to speak. You started to learn about the Deen more, and um, this was around age twenty, correct? So, what year is this? So we can get a sense of the timeline of your uh, milestones here. This is around the a 1995-ish. So that's that's about that ballpark. I'm almost basically it was on Christmas that I became Muslim. So it was December Love 25th, it. I think. <laughs> that's, beautiful. that's beautiful. Irony of that. Okay, so uh, yeah, so as soon as I became Muslim, um, I discovered that. Well, I thought everyone was following Islam because I, the day first day I became Muslim, I'm like wow, this is amazing. I, I can't wait to go back to the Muslim community. And then I quickly realized that the Muslim community and Islam are two different things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very different yeah, things. Yeah. I often say, Alhamdulillah, Allah showed me Islam before he showed me the Muslims. Right. Because the Muslims were doing so much weird stuff and so many cultural things that I tell myself, if I was around that, at, initially I would never become Muslim. Yeah. It's because I found Islam itself at its purest form, I want to become Muslim. And, I, and unfortunately, these days we see a lot of the backwards thing you see in the media and when you ever see Muslims portrayed in the media, it's often people not following Islam. It's following their own culture or following their own nonsense uh, and their own values that they made up. And just because they happen to be Muslim, people associate Islam with that now. And that's not true whatsoever. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really glad you brought that up because I, I certainly, as someone who is in the field of human science and psychology and, and Islam, you know, and how that all works together. I mean, nowadays, I'm sure you've witnessed this. I mean, remember the old days when it was like, hey, are you Salafi? Are you Sunni? Are you Shiai? Are you, you know... Or kicking it with it's like the, the issues were, you know, it was all about sex, almost like sectarianism within the fold. Now you're getting stuff that is just in the last five years. Um, you're just like, where, where is this coming from? This has this isn't this has nothing to do with Islam. And you have people who are still using the labels of being Muslim and, oh, I'm Muslim, but I'm basically going to define my own version of it. I mean, I just saw the other day on Facebook, a convert to Islam. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was like something to the effect of, I just converted to Islam, but I'm not going to pray five times a day. I'm not going to fast Ramadan. I'm not going to follow the value of ha- avoiding premarital sex because all of this is Islamic cultural appropriation. 
This is what I call Islam a la carte. I would just it's not that. even Islam a la carte. Is that you know you have to first agree that there's food to 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 choose from to have a la carte. But you're already saying you know, uh, and so it's just funny because you see like the comments to these types of things. It's like, well, what exactly did you convert to? You know, you converted to your own deen, but you happen to use some of these uh, labels and terminology of convenience. But it's like, I mean, I I've studied other religions. I've sat with scholars of other traditions and there's nobody who's considered a scholar of any religion that will say oh you can just make up your own thing and and slap on the labels and that's considered you know what it is i mean we know this even for something as basic as food i can say you know this is tuna fish and it can but if i have you know dog food inside it it doesn't matter what the label is the reality is still the reality exactly right exactly and so so religion just like any other philosophy or worldview or scientific approach there are certain conditions and standards that have to be met before you can even consider yourself a part of that group or a member of that community but now for some reason you have people who are just like you know, within the Muslim community, just like coming up with their own nonsense, in my opinion. And they're like, oh, no, this is still legitimate Islam. And I mean, I've even met people who say, you know, we pray our own way. And you don't mention Muhammad in, in the prayer. Yeah. But that's a whole other discussion. I don't want to I don't want to digress. There's all kinds of groups coming up out there. But mashallah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guided you. And um, it sounds like, uh, you know, it's been something that's that's integral to your life and now you basically years after this conversion you started to really give back to the community and and offer some wonderful uh gifts why don't you tell us more about that well every year i try to come up with something brand new and to make a positive impact within the muslim community so um back in 2005 i started inventing games I invented board games, not video games. So cool. Yeah, yeah. So I can give something, so I can teach within games. I thought games is a very nice and subtle way to teach while entertaining people. And this is kind of almost like my recipe is if you follow the other projects I've done. I always try to do things that are intriguing, interesting, uh, and at the same time have a positive impact within the community. The following year after that, Another project. And it, the, one of my, my bigger projects, actually, I'll tell you that project. The 2006 was my first uh, project on YouTube, which was called the Reminder Series. This was a uh, videos I want to do to show what's happening within the Muslim community and talk about the issues that I didn't feel like scholars were talking about or I didn't hear in the normal Friday khutbahs. So um, it actually started. <laughs> what happened was I was... Um, I made the board game back in 2005. It did really well. I was uh, featured. What's the name of the board game? Uh, by the the way? first board game I made, I made m- numerous ones, but the first one I made was called Mecca to Medina. It was a trading game. Uh, it was a game of based on negotiation. It's completely different mechanics than a typical game you see in today's market for Muslims, which is trivia games. It's something very unique and different. It's almost like the kids like the way enjoyed Pokemon of trading. This is a trading game. So. It got really popular. I did really, really well in it. It started selling worldwide. And then I found myself on TV about, uh, I believe, a year later. And when I was on TV, I met this couple who told me how they ended up starting a television station and how it was his wife's idea. And Long story short, I came back from that trip. I'm like, wow, I love what the power of a camera lens can do. Absolutely. Yeah. Media. Exactly. So I said, I need to make another positive impact for the Muslims. Let's use the power of media to educate Muslims and to make films for them. And that's why I call it Ummah Films. That's why my channel is called Ummah Films. Not, not Baba Ali Films, Ummah Films, because from the Ummah. 
So I bought all this camera equipment. I bought all of this stuff. I all my a lot of my savings I put into this like ten thousand dollars worth of equipment, which I had no idea how to use. By the way, I just found out. <laughs> I give it. To, I give it to some local brothers that said, "Oh, they're filmmakers." And after three months, I asked them, "Okay, what have you guys filmed so far?" And they showed me ten seconds of footage. And I said, 10 seconds of footage? And I looked at the footage, <laughs> and it's just this guy eating cereal, and his sister walks into the kitchen. And I'm like, this is what you guys been doing for three months? Yes, it's a long process. I'm like, no, no, no. Give me all my equipment back. I took all my equipment, put it in my car. I brought it home. I set it up all in my daughter's room. And I'm like, what am I going to do with this now? I don't know how to use camera equipment. I don't know how to use all this fancy audio equipment. And I went to Friday Prayer. And I saw something I see in every Friday prayer, just another irrelevant topic while all these important issues are right in, in the same room and no one's talking about it. So I came home, turned on my video camera, and I talked about my, I did my first video called Funny Things You See at Juma. Right. <laughs> I, I posted it and uh, 3,000 views, which was a lot back in 2006. So I'm like, wow, people are actually watching this? So I posted another video the next Friday. And another video the next Friday, and then 3,000 became 30,000, became 100,000, became a million views, and now there's 20 million views of videos of me sitting in my daughter's room talking about the issues within the Muslim community that I never hear anywhere else. Mm. A video I'm actually releasing next Friday is about <laughs> why is it so hard to get married? I mean, why is it so hard to find someone to get married? An issue we never hear about. Right. And we're going to talk about that today. Yes, inshallah. For sure. But um, so so it sounds like, you know, you've had a, a lot of uh, breakthroughs when it comes to your personal and um, even professional life as far as like the Muslim sphere or the Muslim market, so to speak. So you, you got involved in some, um, you started this YouTube channel uh, on on Muslim uh, marriage and relationship topics. Uh, you've also kind of dabbled also in comedies. Uh, there was also another board game that you released. And uh, of course, there's the famous website, uh, Half Ardeen, which is a, a Muslim matrimonial um, site. You want to give us a, a brief snippet about all of those projects, and then we can maybe get more into um, some of the gems that you have to offer as far as why Muslims are struggling to get married. Well, I started these different projects, um, and each some of the projects was as you know. Sometimes you go through a learning phase, even when you become Muslim, you're learning you're learning things, and then later on, you learn your opinions about certain things change. Right? You don't keep the same opinions as you had from the day one till day now. And because there's different people with different understandings of Islam, and as you said earlier, there's people who are more Sufi, and there's people who are more Salafi, and there's people who are more like this and more like this. So as you're interacting with different people, especially at the beginning, you are getting different ideas, right? You're getting different understandings. And at the very end, just like stand-up comedy, they say when you're trying to do stand-up comedy initially, you're, you don't find your voice until years later. You don't get your style until years later, until you dabble into different things. When I started these different projects, some of those projects, like later on, I go back and say, what was I thinking? What was I doing? And then other projects, I come back and say, oh, I wish I, I wish I can go back and do more of that. Got it. 
No, that's very that's very commendable of you, Adi, to 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 learn from your mistakes and to actually admit them. I think this is one of the big problems that we have in our community: is to be a good Muslim means you have to be a perfect Muslim, right? And we don't recognize that part of the hikmah or the wisdom of evolving spiritually and becoming a more mature Muslim is to certainly make mistakes and to learn from them and to and to keep refining one's character and knowledge. I mean, that's the path. But a lot of people, you know, it's like, oh. If you're not perfect anymore, then now we kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. And this is just absurd. And I think it's um, a very powerful strategy from the uh, shaitanic energy to make us uh, disconnect and put down our brothers and sisters who are just human, just like you and I. Yeah. And, you know, different, as I was saying before, you, when you have different understandings, and if you know you're wrong in that, to hold on to that and defend it is, is incorrect as well. You have to learn to accept that, okay. I've changed. I have my opinions on certain things have changed and you shouldn't be proud of or have an ego about just defending it for the sake of defense. You, it's okay to say, look, I made a mistake. I was wrong. And now I have a different opinion now. But I've, I've met people who know they're wrong, but they continue defending their nonsense. <laughs> so, even though they know this is wrong, it's just an ego thing to because they don't want to say I'm wrong. So after the, that project, um, uh, as we mentioned before, board games, I mentioned we did this uh, stand-up comedy. Stand-up comedy is something, alhamdulillah, brought a lot of smiles to a lot of people's faces. I've done about 350 shows all around the world. Uh, if you name the con, I think I've been to all, I think every continent except for South America. And I've been in the most strangest places to do stand-up comedy. Everywhere from the from like to, like negative 22 degree weather in Edmonton to like wow. to Virgin Islands in the middle of nowhere where I actually got on stage and said, how did you guys find this place? Like talking about them. <laughs> like <laughs> I, the first masjid ever built was in Edmonton. And that's like negative 22 weather. I'm like, you guys came from the desert and you decided to pick a masjid here in negative two. And they started laughing. <laughs> and, but um, yeah, I've been, it's, I was, I think the only Muslim uh, comedian to ever perform in Saudi Arabia. Uh, that was strange. The Royal family people invited me down there to perform for 10, really? yeah, for 10 minutes. Wow, what was that like? Ten, so they flew you all the way to Arabia for a ten-minute show. Well, yeah. So let me tell you what happened. So they, my videos got popular on YouTube, uh, and there, at that time, I was the first Muslim. I was the Muslim first video blogger, and there was no really any competition. It, it, YouTube had not blown up to what it is right now. It was just purchased by Google back in two thousand six ish. So um, I was like the only main channel there. And so every all the different Muslims were starting seeing it and inviting me, inviting me, inviting me until it got to the hands of I think one of the princesses, who her team personally invited me to come down and perform for ten minutes. So while I was there, um, <laughs> while I was there, it was strange because I saw some of the things that I did not like. I saw some of the, the cultural things that I felt were backwards and I thought I saw people mistreated because they weren't from a certain country or from a certain skin color and I didn't have any interest whatsoever in returning into that land except I say I'll go one more back one more time back for Hajj but after that I have no interest in coming back here again and when they invited me to have dinner with the queen of Jordan the prince of so-and-so the princess it's like a royal family invitation I got to go for dinner I also had the same night had the invitation to go have some chicken with some friends and uh, not friends, just a friend and uh, sit on the side of the freeway and have chicken. I decided to do the, the second 
one instead of the first. I said, I have no interest in royal family and that kind of stuff. I mean, if these people are persecuting people innocently and mistreating people, I don't want to sit in their company. And to a lot of people, that's just insane. Uh, dude, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And for me, it wasn't. I have no respect. I have no regrets for whatsoever. So money doesn't buy me off. It's uh, no, neither does the fame. All my friends who know me, no matter how popular I became, I performed in front of forty thousand people numerous times. Uh, it doesn't change me whatsoever. I'm still the same Ali. Well, that's that's a very difficult thing to um, to to keep up because I think there's always that risk of the more exposure and success you have, the more difficult you have that battle with your ego. So, wh- what are some of your disciplines or influence on the nefs to keep it in its proper place? Because it does sound like you've had a lot of uh, opportunities to inflate yourself in- in- wrongfully. Um, what what how have you really tried to maintain that value of I want to remain humble and recognize that everything is. From Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even if I'm being invited, you know, to to these fancy uh, royal dinners. Yeah. So what happened was, I think this is part of our upbringing, and sometimes when you see certain things as you're growing up, it kind of like um, it kind of makes an impact on you. Like I grew up around people who had a lot of money, and I saw the impact, the negative side of money. Uh, not there's positive side. Everyone craves it, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. But I'm saying I've seen how it breaks families apart. I've seen how businesses can fall apart because people are just greedy. Two people who are best friends start a business together and then they're fighting over money. They won't talk to each other for 10 years because of that. And it's a fitna in itself if you don't have iman, if you don't have strength to fight it. And fame is no different. I've seen people who were nobodies and become popular and then they forget about about everybody else. It, it kind of made me have a... Uh, it's kind of like growing up with someone who is a smoker and just seeing all the negative effects of smoking and just watching their their health deteriorate. So when someone offers you a, uh, your first cigarette, you have no interest in it because of the way you were raised and because of the things you saw. Similarly, in fame, I saw the same thing and I saw it with money and I saw it with other things. And that's for the for that reason, it's, it's, it's one of the things that wasn't really appealing to me whatsoever. In fact, when I was oftentimes given that position to be on stage or given constant autographs and, and things of that nature, I shied away from it because it, it kind of pushed me away. I almost I almost dislike it the way some people like it. Does that make sense? I shy away from it. Uh, absolutely. Possible. Absolutely. No, I, I mean, one of my... Um uh friends that i would say is a pretty famous brother i'm not going to name him um but you know one of the things he told me was he's just not interested in you know invitations to go do these talks at messages and this and that i said well why not brother i mean you're going to share your valuable knowledge he's like honestly because i feel like half the time i'm like their clown I'm just like coming on stage to give him some performance and this whole like celebrity, you know, vibe and oh, I want to take a picture with you. And it's just like it takes away from the intention. And he said, the only time I'm willing to work with Muslim organizations is if they commit to something serious, like, you know, for the next month, we're going to do a series of workshops or seminars. In other words, do you really want the knowledge or you just want the appearance of this Muslim celebrity so that you guys can build your masjid ego? <laughs> That's how familiar is that, subhanAllah? <laughs> you know, bro? So I'm sure you can resonate oh, with oh, that. Oh, yes. Huh? Uh, it's funny, like, the must, one of the masjids I go to is uh, the same one Lupe Fiasco goes to. And nobody says salam to the guy Nobody. He just walks in. He just prays. He sits there. 
he's just like another regular random brother sitting there. And I remember one time I tweeted after Juma because me and him are praying next to each other and no one knows who Baba Ali is. No one knows who Lupe Fiasco is. It's just a bunch of older uncles. <laughs> Some con some converts, and that's it. And it's like, and that's what that's the reason. One of the reasons I understand why he prays there. You know, he doesn't. You know, sometimes I don't want to be Bob Ali. Sometimes I just want to be Ali. You know, actually, all the time I don't want to be Bob Ali. I just want to be Ali. I didn't do these videos to become popular. I actually sent these videos to friends when I made those videos on YouTube, and those friends sent to some more friends, sent to some more friends. I had no idea how this thing was going to be blown up. I mean, I didn't know I was be casted for a reality TV show. I would be do this. All, a thousand things that happened to me because of just some videos I made in my daughter's room. And these were filmed in my daughter's room. So if you took the camera like six inches this way, you'll see her bed. Take it six inches this way, you'll probably see her like her like their kitchen, her play kitchen. It's just this blank piece of canvas, like this blank piece of the wall that I made all those videos in. It's funny. SubhanAllah. Yeah. Subhanallah. So so let me let me ask you this. So what currently are you uh working on and um tell us more about your upcoming projects and uh you know have you kind of stepped back a bit focused on family um you know thing, did things get a little quiet on your front and now you're you're about to launch some other projects why don't you tell us more about what wh how you see the future of of Baba Ali's uh, contribution? To the so um, those those comedy things took a lot of my time. Doing 350 shows, and you, and you 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 span that out in 10 years. That's about 35 shows every year. And some years obviously were busier than others. So I, I kind of put a lot of it's really slowed down my whole let's start a brand new project once a year thing. But I still was able to do it. I started Muslim Personality. I started Half Our Dean, which is a matchmaking thing. I started my my second board game, which was Kalimat, which was launched back also in 2011. And then um, I was part of a series called Hooray for Baba Ali, which we taught children uh, about some good Islamic values. And that kind of takes me to my current project, which I'm working on right now, um, which is called Baba Ali Kids, where I'm about to launch it on October 27th where it's I'm going to be crowdfunding it and I'm doing the first ever children's series which is going to be like Blue's Clues where it's a human being like myself and a animated character interacting with each other and with the audience with the with the with the lens and it's yeah so Sesame Street made uh made their whole series about literacy Blue's Clues was all about problem solving and this is the first series all about good character but I'm doing it in a fun way. It's not like preachy. It's not like in education. It's done in a way that kids are watching and they don't realize they're being educated, if that makes sense. And that's the way I want, I want to like make sure people learn. I don't want to be – if you as soon as you tell those kids it's educational and this and that, the kids don't watch that stuff. Right. But, but, but that doesn't mean you still can't learn by watching something entertaining or interesting, right? I mean, you're always learning, yeah, even if you're exactly. observing anything. You're going to be taking away some data points or some knowledge or insights, whether you like it or not. But obviously, um, when there's an intention behind it, and I think that's a really uh, important strategy of, hey, let's just start creating higher quality uh, media and content for the Muslim market because we have our own narrative, we have our own values, and certainly, um, you know, if we don't develop our own channels, our own, you know, um, 
production studios, etc., uh, our kids are going to be watching other things, right? And nowadays, a lot of even cartoons are including values or concepts that aren't necessarily always uh, vibing with Islamic values, to say the least. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to say the least. Especially some stuff Disney has come out with, but that's a whole different topic. <laughs> don't, don't, don't get us started on, on Disney, man. But, uh... Yeah, so... So with this kid series, the story is that Ali, me, is a six foot five year old. So I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm, tall, I'm five years old, and I, I, I literally act like a five year old. Like I will laugh and cry within the same minute. Um, I throw tantrums. I do everything. I get really. I have ups and downs, just like a five year old does. I have short attention span. So it's it's just like that. It's really it's not too much. <laughs> if you could probably tell my ask my wife, my wife would probably tell you this is pretty much normal. He's not really acting. <laughs> right. I was gonna say is uh, exactly. I was gonna ask. Does your wife think you're actually acting, or you're just recording yourself being you? Much, so yeah, I am a, really a big kid anyway. So so and the topics are stuff that kids care about. Maybe not you and I may care about, but it's actually kids care about. That's why I want to make it interesting. So we're still tackling issues about character. But we're doing it in in in, this rel- in topics that's relevant to them. It's the se- same secret formula I used when I was doing my videos on YouTube, uh, talking about relevant issues to the to that demographic, to that audience. So I'll give you an example. One one video we're do- one topic is uh, getting your first haircut and being scared of it. It's stuff that you and I are not really. It's not really an issue for us. But when you're five years old, and this guy has two scissors in his hands and he tells you to sit there away from your mommy and daddy. It's pretty scary. He's chopping away from next to your head and next to your ears. It looks really scary. And it's a completely new experience. So in one of the shows, I was hiding under the table. And I, was, I wasn't leaving because I didn't want to get my first haircut. Or there was another episode about sharing. And even though it tells you the same thing, that oh, sharing is caring, I don't listen to any of that nonsense. I, I come back and I battle that. And there's one, the, but the pilot episode was about having good friends and these are all concepts that we can teach within with humor but it it has islamic values in it and it's something that i want to make a series that non-muslims can show their kids as well beautiful yeah i mean because there's a lot of i mean universal truths and evergreen wisdom there right yes and that's going to be stuff that when they see it they tell themselves wow i thought you guys were teaching your kids sharia and no, <laughs> no, we're teaching them to brush their teeth, and we're teaching them to like, like be good all human these beings, things. essentially. Yeah, wow. You know, there's one episode which one of my favorite episodes is about being different, and I come home being teased uh, because I, I'm six feet tall and I'm five years old. So all the kids tease me because I'm such a big kid, literally. Um, do, and do you also have a beard as a five year old? Yes, I do. Giant? I, yes, I, you do. Yes, okay, do. exquisite. <laughs> They're like making fun of me. Why are you so big? You know, why are you so different? And my and I have a 3D character that's his name is Mumu. And he's like he's like more of uh, the wiser of the two of us. But he's also a big kid. And we're just silly together. We goof around together. So it's fun for the kids to watch. And I've seen kids watch it and they're really entertained. They watch it again. So it's completely different than the typical, all right, this like I've seen cartoons and, and the way they try to teach children is not normal. You know, like when you're talking to a five-year-old, you don't say, well, Aisha an said in hadith narrated by so-and-so, which has a chair narration. I mean, the five-year-old's like, what are you talking about? Like, you don't talk like that to kids. 
So I said, let's do some way that you can teach kids, but in a very subtle way, and they get the message across, and they're being entertained. And that's what the whole Ali kids is. Now, the challenge, as you said, of quality, I don't know how the Muslims are going to perceive this because I've hired like a real professional crew to do this. Yeah. And do a crowdfunding, these episodes to make like nine of them is going to cost around like $70,000. Mm-hmm. It's like a real professional crew to do it, like 3D animation. That's great. But let's see if the people crowdfunded. And we already made one episode, inshallah. Alhamdulillah. So, no tawfiq, inshallah. So. So that's that project, and uh, I think the next project that most people know me by is a marriage project called Half Hour Dean. I that's the one that's of all the projects I work on. That's my passion. That's my love. So, brother Adi, tell us more about our, your matrimonial website, Half Hour Dean, and um, what was the intention behind that? Well, many years ago, I was looking to get married, and it was I had the same challenges a lot of people have today. We all are trying to find our other half, but we don't know where to find them. And when I was looking to get married, we uh, the internet was still rather new. This was back in about 2001-ish. And uh, most people didn't use it for like what we use it today. Like Amazon wasn't what, what it is today. Um, eBay was is, isn't what it was today. Uh, for, for sure, Facebook wasn't what it is today. And so it was a completely different animal back then. So when I was looking to get married, I was like, where do I find my other half? And I, since I couldn't find anyone locally and I couldn't find anyone through friends and family, I did the unthinkable. I went online and I wasn't sure which website worked. So I tried all of them and I basically put my profile. But I said, look, I don't want to waste time with people. I'm be very, very, very specific on what I'm looking for. And some people may read my profile and be offended. It's like, who does he think he is? But I said, all I need is one person, just one person to say yes to this. So when I put my profile up on all these websites, I got 17 responses. 17 people said they're interested. And right there, I realized that some people are going to tell me what I want to hear. And some people are not going to be accurate with, I'm saying this in a nice way, but basically they're not going to tell me the truth. So this is true if it's online or offline, because just because you're not on the internet doesn't mean that you're going to be dealing with all honest people. So, (laughs) So I said, how do I filter out these people? How do I filter out to make sure I, I find, I'm talking to the right person? So what I did is I sent, I came up with my own uh, method. I came up with questions that didn't have right or wrong answers. And I sent it to all 17 people. Of those 17 people, only one of them answered it correctly. Interesting. That's the one I married. Subhanallah, really? Yeah. Wow. That's beautiful. So that's the story of the filtering out process and also a way for you to, to, to actually co- find that connection with somebody. Yeah, friends asked me, Ali, where can I – how do you find the girl of your dreams? How do you find this? And I said, look, I have these questions. And they asked me, can I get a copy of those questions as well? And I gave it to a friend. He used it. He got married, and he's happily married with three kids right now. Lives about an hour away from me. He was the first half-hardening success story. Then the next person asked, can I get those co- copy of those questions? And everyone wanted to copy of these questions. And I said, guys, this is just the beginning. There's a lot more you guys can do to make sure you find yourself, the ac- to find yourself uh, an accurate way of finding people. And I said, look, I should build a website to help everybody, not just help myself. You know, And, and that's where the idea of half-hardening came. And this is why half-hardening goes beyond just of asking questions of your height, your eye color, your hair color, but rather it allows people to filter out people that don't match with them before you even say salam to them by asking these type of questions. 
How about what are a couple of those questions? I'm sure the audience is curious. Okay, so like everyone has their own preference, right? So and you take actually it took me and one of my closest friends, and I asked him like question number seventeen, and he answered a different way versus what the way I would answer it, right? So we asked like for example, um, your wife asked question number seventeen was, would you rather be taken care of, or or would you rather be independent? Or another question would be like, would you, are you more fair or are you more forgiving? And there's different ways to ask all these questions. Like one way to ask that same question I just asked right now is, do you think the world needs more justice or more mercy? If you choose justice, that means you're more fair. If you choose mercy, that means you're more forgiving. So that person doesn't really understand what you're asking. And even if they knew what you're asking, more fair, more forgiving, they don't know what's your preference. Like I chose a wife who's more fair, while somebody else may choose a wife who's more forgiving. And how about you? Are you more forgiving? I think I'm more forgiving than more fair. Yeah. Yes. We'll have to ask your wife about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm the one who says sorry first. <laughs> even, even though if I'm not uh, wrong, I still say to keep trying to keep the peace. She knows that. I don't think she'll argue with that one. No, but that's great. That's really interesting because it's almost like, you know, diving into the actual personality traits that matter, not like what kind of food do you like and what kind of shows on Netflix do you watch? It's like, no, this is about who is the human being that ha- – what are the core traits of this human being that you're about to consider investing a life and family with? Exactly. And then it's oftentimes – it's not necessarily what we're attracted to and that's what people do. When people are looking to get married – they often look at what am I attracted to? What, what qual- even quality is what I'm attracted to. And I teach people it's not what you're attracted to, not just what you're attracted to, that is important, but what you can tolerate in a marriage. Because with every personality type, there comes negative parts of it as well. The same guy, Ali, who's very fun and entertaining and forgives easily, is also very out of focus and can get distracted easily. And uh, short attention span, right? Acts like a childish sometimes. That's the same Ali, right? So if you want someone who, my wife will tell you, he's almost never serious. He's joking around almost too much, right? That comes with my personality type. If the guy's entertaining, he doesn't really have an off switch, right? So sometimes he's like, okay, can you stop entertaining us? I need you to be serious for a minute, right? And then it's it, it you have to deal with the two sides. So okay, are you the challenge we have is sometimes people want the best of every character, and that just doesn't exist. There was one man who had that, and that was the Prophet Yeah, but the rest of us are not perfect. But one of the things we try to do is try to educate ourselves on how people perceive us, how what your personality type is, what's the weaknesses that come with it, and try to work on those things. It's accepting the the whole package. That's when you really know you love somebody. And I was saying, uh, I said this in the other another episode with Doctor Nafisa on uh, the Muslim marriage crisis, and I said, perhaps loving thyself first and foremost is acceptance and compassion for the gifts and growth areas that Allah designed me with. We have to do that first, and when we can do that, then we really know if our spouse or partner is a good fit for us because they also love and accept the gifts and our growth areas as they are. They're not only going to love us conditionally if we meet this perfect fantasy that we have in our head, right? And uh, Or you don't really, you know, fit the bar absolutely in every single quality. I mean, subhanAllah, we're all human. You know what I mean? Even the Prophet ﷺ, who we consider the pinnacle of human possibility, 
I mean, he even took a one-month hiatus from his wives in some point in the seerah, and people who aren't familiar with that want another reminder to go learn the seerah. Exactly. It's very well said. Very well said. Subhanallah. So I'd love to get more into some of these practical gems and jewels which you've been offering for years through your videos. Um, but let's let's talk a bit about it more because I think both of us have a lot to offer when it comes to this subject matter. So in your humble opinion, Brother Ali, why do you think it's so difficult for Muslims to get married today? I know there's a lot of variables. There's socio-cultural and economic and, you know, but let, let me hear more from your just straight perspective of here are the one, two, threes as to why I think we're struggling with this process. Well, the first one, as I just mentioned, we should not just look at what we're attracted to. We should look at what we're what what we can tolerate. And the reason why for this is because, you know, a lot of people that get divorced. um, It's not that because they weren't attracted to that person. They were. There's a reason why they picked this person from the one point five billion Muslims on this planet. They chose this person and they decided to spend to go have all these wedding plans and plan all their entire life and, and shy away from everyone else. There was something special about this person. So how can you not? How can you want to divorce this person less than a year or two years later and resent this person that you never want to see this person ever in your life again? Where it took it from one extreme to the other? What happened? Is because after the honeymoon phase was over, and and the lovey dovey feeling is done, <laughs> what happens? You have to tolerate all the weaknesses that comes with it. And now you you kind of wake up and say, wait a second, I don't think I can live with this, and I don't think I can deal with this, and I don't think I, I want I want to live in the honeymoon phase for the rest of my life. And marriage is not the honeymoon phase. Marriage, the initial part is the honeymoon phase, but after a certain period of time, it becomes the rest of the phase. And it, I'm not saying you can't rekindle that moment, but there are going to be ups and downs, just like your iman has ups and downs. And if you guys don't have a strong foundation, and if it's based like what you were saying earlier, we just our foundation is because we have the same Netflix uh, likings and we have these things in color and we both like certain things in common with each other. And that's not enough to keep a marriage together, to keep it strong. You have to have values that you share. And I don't think a lot of people ask those type of questions when they're talking to each other. That's number one. Uh, number two would be that I think a lot of these young people, you talk to them, they have unrealistic expectations of what marriage life is like. And this is because what we see with our mainstream media and we also see it within our social media as well, where people give this impression of what their marriage life is like and you start comparing your life to theirs. I mean, you have a couple who are sitting in the same room. Oh, you're the best husband in the whole wide world. Oh, I love you too, honey. And they're talking to each other all through Facebook. And they're liking each other's thumb, thumbs up and they love each other and all this stuff. And it's all done. And they're in the same room, not even communicating with one another. It's a show. It's a show for everybody else. And then you comparing yourself. Wow, these two are always like doing these amazing text messages to each other. And there's amazing comments to each other. And, and she just posted a picture of them together. They look like they have the perfect life. And I'm starting to compare my life to theirs. And mine looks pretty boring. No, there is a show. Right. <laughs> a show for you guys. I, I always say, I always say, if if your life is really that good, you wouldn't be spending all this time on social media sharing all this stuff. You would be actually living it. 
you know <laughs> yeah subhanallah people you know sometimes people ask me like kareem i never see you on facebook i'm like because i'm too busy facing life i'm facing god i'm facing the actual people who exist around me you know <laughs> so i mean i not i'm not like against social media i just think it has its proper usage and utility um and certainly can help with connecting with others for sure but the idea that we're constantly outsourcing our existence through these platforms, it's, it's really detrimental, I think, to human health in the long term. We just don't even realize it. And we're already seeing that, you know. Um, you have parents now, they tell me, I just text my daughter to come down for dinner when she's upstairs. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> that's the only way she's going to get the message. SubhanAllah. The screens aren't aware of you, people, you know. <laughs> Make eye contact with the actual human beings in your life because they're not going to be there forever and neither are you. SubhanAllah. Uh, you see people, four teenagers get together and they're dead silent sitting at a table. They're all texting each other at the table. I think like, you guys are not talking. Yeah. It's like silent. <laughs> it's like such a weird, it's such a weird visual thing for me. And when you bring it up, they just look at you like, like you're crazy. Like you're straight. Yeah. Like you're, we're just texting each other. Like we're having a private conversation. And then these two are talking about something else. And then we're all texting our friends that you guys should be here to do what? It absolutely makes no difference if your friends are, your other friends are here because you just are, will text each other as well. So I find it strange. And then imagine this generation that is interacting this way, they get married. Oh God! That's, yeah, yeah, no, that's how, yeah. So their whole world is online, and their whole life is online. They don't live life as you just mentioned, and I think this is another reason why we feel disconnected. It's it's just it's just very strange phenomenon that we're living in, and it, to us who lived in the previous generation, we have something to compare it to. But for those who are born in this generation and they're growing up as this, this is the only thing they they see, and this is the only thing they know. And it, you kind of feel sorry for them. You're like, you know, there used to be times we used to like interact in a way, you know, when a husband and wife are brand new and they didn't have phones. They used to interact. <laughs> they used to talk. They used to go on walks together. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's a common theme, Andy, that comes up in couples work that I do. There's, you know, that somebody is too addicted to their phone or being online or social media. And um and they're not really being present and connecting with the human beings around them. The other, I think, warning that I'd like to offer people listening is, I mean, when we have, like, all people, you know, we know this in our, you know, Middle Eastern and Eastern cultures. It's like there's this problem of comparing us to other people, right? I mean, I'm sure we've heard this growing up, like, oh, if you don't do this, you're not going to be like your cousin, you know, Muhammad, or you're going to end up like her if you don't do this, or we want you to be more like this person. So we already had this like comparison and, and sometimes judgment or this frame of reference of how to become better or more. But now with social media, you have infinite, you know, fake, ideal um, perfectionism out there that people are constantly being inundated with. And of course, that's going to increase in people's sorrow and anxiety and stress and sadness that like, oh, my husband's not like this person. Look at all their posts. And my wife isn't as beautiful as this woman. Look at all their posts. And it's just like, we're also opening up a, a whole other dark side to this that we're not even aware of, you know, that this frame of reference of perfection and all these properties is enhancing. And it becomes more difficult and less likely for you to actually appreciate what you have. And gratitude is a, is an important um, pillar of, of spirituality, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and they're expecting perfection with all this because online everything looks perfect. And when they, and you see your life isn't perfect, you're like, okay, maybe I married the wrong person. And then you get divorced to marry somebody else only to realize that the next person isn't perfect. And the next person isn't perfect. And then you find yourself, it's now is nobody really wants to marry you because you married four or five people that 
that don't match with you. And then eventually people start saying maybe you're the problem. Right. So it's it's a, it's a huge issue. I mean, that's number two. And number three, I think, is one. That, and by the way, this is not in any specific order. But number three would be like we, we're living in a life, as you just mentioned, like we have a, some cultural things that that push us behind. And uh, as we were discussing earlier in this podcast was that the challenges we have with Islamic things um, is also falls into when it comes to marriage as well, where cultural things makes us look backwards we have a lot of cultural nonsense that we are dealing with with families with um husbands and wives with like relatives getting involved in things and telling you to do things culturally rather than religiously and then you see it has a negative impact on the marriage itself yeah and it's it gets really even political like i can remember like for instance if like let's say i have a brother and my brother really wanted his daughter to marry my son and I was like, not, I'm not interested in that, right? Um, and then my son finds somebody else, and now my brother is constantly causing all this fitna in the family because he feels slighted that I didn't marry my son to his daughter, right? And, and sometimes <laughs> it has to do with like finances, it has to do with respect. Oh, I'm your older brother, you're supposed to listen to me and do everything I say. And then there's all this sabotage that happens within families. I mean, it's just like, it really is... You know, and I use this word a lot, and it's, you know, one of my principles in, in the work I do is this concept of existential Islam. In other words, ex, ex, using Islam as truly the building blocks of yourself and your existence. And I just don't get how somebody can claim that they believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that they believe that in no time they're going to return to their Lord and be accountable for what they do and have such malicious intentions to sabotage manipulate destroy themselves and their own families and in, in some of these marital processes it's just really scary when some of the stories i've witnessed and, and heard about so may allah increase us and really guide us because i mean it's just there's so much negativity that comes out of that not only do you damage people's families and hearts but you also damage people's relationships and attitudes towards islam because if this is what they think it is right these cultural, certain cultural expressions of it, we're causing a huge disservice to this beautiful deen. Yeah, unfortunately, and we're all ambassadors to this deen as well. And you have always people, especially the young kids that are growing up, just because they're born to the religion doesn't mean that they'll stay within the religion. A lot of times they are looking at your actions to see what Islam is, and they get confused. You know, they look at a father who prays and fasts, and then he acts accordingly like this. Then you associate this is, oh, I don't want anything to do with religion because my dad was the one who broke up my marriage and he did this and all this other nonsense. So it's, it's, it's a lot of confusion, especially from the youth, because they don't understand where the where culture ends and where Islam begins. No, that's a very good point. And what happens when you have this um, enmeshment, if you will, and conflation of cultural politics and all this stuff with Islam, and it's being labeled as Islam, now, like I said at the beginning of the show, you're also now getting this extreme proportionate response on the far left of, well, we're going to throw all of that out. Because this is just so backwards and so disgusting that, you know, down with everything that has anything to do with, you know, Islamic principles and, and culture. And we're going to make our own Islam that's, you know, rooted in secular liberal ideas. And it's like this isn't happening out of a vacuum either. You know, it's also happening because many families have perpetuated some of these immature, imbalanced and dangerous cultural political constructs that they brought with them. 
right? I always tell people, listen, Islam teaches us that when you have two extreme positions, usually you're going to find the truth and a synthesis and something in the middle, right? So on the one hand, we have to, of course, address and deconstruct the diseases of certain cultural polity that has been infused in the religion. And on the other hand, we can't also just throw out, we have to really understand this deen as it is. And some people that I've spoken to who've had a very difficult time with faith, I say, can you translate the Fatiha for me? And they don't even know how. So I'm like, you don't even have a solid grasp of the deen to, to claim now that you're going to, you know, curse it and deconstruct it and throw it out the window. You don't even know how to translate the Fatiha. So what knowledge do you really have besides what you inherited from your family? And not everybody's like this, but I'm talking about those specific cases, right? That subhanAllah, I mean, you've already made a judgment yeah. call on, on the deen based on your personal experiences, which all bite can be very negative and traumatizing. I, I, I don't take away from that. That's definitely real for some people but then you don't even know how to translate a simple thing that you say in the, supposedly in prayer five times a day right you can't even translate the fatiha so how do you even know that you have a an understanding of this religion in the first place when you can't translate something as simple as the fatiha just a just a you know insight and remind you know they say there's you don't know somebody until like i always actually mentioned this in my videos a few times that you're praying fasting all those things are easy if you really want to see the person's, uh, their iman, uh, their faith, watch them when they're being tested. And oftentimes you don't see any of these things when you're talking to someone, when you're talking to them about marriage, right? You're seeing the best side of them because it's almost like non-Muslims when they have their first date. They're not going there in the first date and talking about their weaknesses and all the negative things that come with them. They're trying to show them the best way they can, right? They're trying to show themselves the best way they can. So when Muslims are going through this courtship phase, they're, you're seeing the best side of them. The guy's as romantic as possible. The girl looks as kind as possible. Everyone's doing everything the best they can. It's once you get into the marriage, you realize what this person is. Because within the marriage, you're going to start getting tested. You're going to see how do they react when they're angry. You don't know how they're going to act when they're angry. Very rarely is someone, the guy and girl, angry in the courtship phase. <laughs> They actually push you away. Well, that's changing. That's changing too, from my experience in premarital counseling. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but subhanallah, it's very interesting. There's all kinds of uh, ways it plays out. But I love this idea. This is a very important point, and you know, I mentioned it in in um, the ep episode ten, and I believe is episode seven, mar Muslim marriage myths. Um, this idea of love that love isn't just some pixie dust that floats around in the air unconditionally. It's something that you have to, I kind of like to see it as almost like a fire. You have to keep putting wood into it. You have to keep giving it, you know, the right amount of oxygen. You don't want it to, um, it can't keep living and, and burning unless you give it what it needs, yeah, exactly. right? Or it's like a plant. You have to water it. You have to make sure that it's getting sunlight and nur in order for it to grow. You can't expect it to just grow if you, a plant, if you just put Put it in the closet and forget about it, right? You have to keep uh, involving yourself in this experience of love. W what are your thoughts about that? How would you even define love? And what are some practical tips that you can offer to keep that love flame uh, or love garden uh, growing? I think men and women, they look at love in two different ways, you know? Good point. Uh, men, they look at everything as the, as the, like, for example, I did one major thing for my wife and I'm good to go for a very long time. While a woman will look at it and say, look, we reset our account every day. <laughs> so just because you say, I love to, I love you last week to me, doesn't mean we're good for the next month or two months, right? So you always have to understand how the opposite gender thinks, how they communicate, how they understand love, 
because we see it in different ways. And this is was going to take me to the fourth point of the problems that we have within the Muslim community, and not just Muslim community, not Muslims as well, is understanding the opposite gender, understanding how the opposite gender Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is. There's a reason why they call them the opposite gender. They're wired differently than you, and you can't force them to be uh, like to think like you. They're not. So one of the things I did when I, before I got married is trying to learn everything I can about the opposite gender, read books about how women think, how women understand things, how women communicate, how they deal with stress. Um, I, when I do my stand-up comedy, I mention these type of things. I talk about how when a man is stressed, what does he want? He wants to be left alone. He wants to, when he comes home from work or school and he's had a really, really stressful day, he doesn't want to usually talk about it. Usually he wants to be left alone so he can internalize his thoughts, he can try to go through it, and if he, at that point he still can't figure it out, He'll go and talk to someone about it. But men, they see this as the way to deal with stress, right? And when they hang out with their friends and someone's going through stress, they, they don't really approach the guy unless he said they think to themselves, most men, if, he's, if he wants my help, he'll ask me. Otherwise, let me give him his space, a common term you hear. But when he gets married and he sees his wife's stress, he sees her crying, he sees, oh, she's going through a really stressful situation. His natural instinct says, okay, let me just leave, give her her space. Leave her alone. And this is the exact opposite of what she needs, right? She needs somebody to empathize with her, someone to hear her out so, so she can externalize her thoughts, right? So women, do they deal with stress differently. So there was a saying I remember reading one of the books that says, when men uh, get stressed, they start wars and invade countries. And when women get stressed, they eat chocolate and go shopping. So they deal with it completely differently, and men are different and women are different. But unfortunately, I still, see, even till now, I still see us constantly, constantly, constantly with men and women trying to force the opposite to think and act like they do, and they're just not. And I, I kind of wish that we, this was a little bit more emphasized within the Muslim community. We heard click buzz about it. We heard talks about it. So in one of my uh, seasons of the whole Bob Ali thing on YouTube, I made entire, I think season four was all about half of our deen, which is also a reference, not just a website, but actually a reference for all of, uh, for the Prophet Wasallam mentioning that marriage is half our deen. So I talked about all those issues that I wish I heard clip was about, like how men and women are direct and indirect sometimes and how we fight and how we uh, deal with stress differently. Why men watch sports? Why are they fascinated with sports? Like women just watch it and like, some women like it, but not like the way the men like it. They don't sit there and watch baseball for back-to-back -back games for four hours. <laughs> so it's like, why do men like so fascinated with this thing? It's just a little ball and a stick. And this guy, either a guy is kicking a ball, chasing a ball, catching a ball. And we value these people so much that we'll pay them $20 million because you can throw a ball, kick a ball, catch a ball, whatever you do with the ball. While the best heart surgeon in the world that saves lives we won't pay you a fraction yeah, well, of that. Our priorities. Why Why do men – yeah, priorities. Why do we value this? Why do so many men value these things? And and some atheists will tell you, oh, because um, men used to – I don't want to even get to – I don't want to die. Like, like it's like modern-day gladiators. Like it's a way to express our aggression and testosterone. And in, in, in it's like a, the postmodern way to do it kind of thing. Is that where you were going to go with that? Yeah, I mean, basically, back in the days, men used to, uh, you know, they used to go hunt. And then uh, that instinct of the best person who can hunt is be able to uh, 
he's able to feed his family and eat. And while the guy who can hunt, he kind of like dies and withers away. <laughs> so um, women were attracted to the men who were successful in these things, right? So um, those things are gone now. Now we don't have to hunt for our meat. All we left is fighting if the meat is halal or not, but those fighting over right. <laughs> or, or whether or not there is meat for dinner or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is meat for dinner, exactly. So now that instinct of someone catching, hitting a moving target or catching a moving target is still there. We are fascinated with it. Men are fascinated with a guy who's really good at hitting a target or catching a target. And this is where all of this football, basketball, baseball all comes from. It's connected to our natural wired, the way we're wired. So that's why we value these athletes more than we value the people who are like changing lives. I mean, the guy who shot a basketball in a hoop, great. That's great. And by the way, I'm a big basketball fan myself and I watch football and everything. But I'm saying like the way we value them versus the way we value, as I said, the best heart surgeon or the person who's curing a disease it's not even half the salary. It's not even close. I mean, tell me a doctor who gets paid $10 million a year, a doctor who gets even $2 million a year. This is unheard of. I don't care what even graduate to the best schools in the world. They don't give you this much money. So it's like, what, why do we value these things? It's because this is men are wired this way and they're entertained by these gladiators and they're entertained by these things. While women, on the other hand, value things completely different. See, men look at uh, the facts they look at facts and figures. They're interested in these things. While women are more interested in the relationships of those facts and figures. They're more interested in how those relationships work. Um, men speak in sentences. Women speak in paragraphs. Right? So how do you incorporate those two things when they get into a, a marriage together? A guy comes home and asks his wife, how was your day? And she can go on for hours talking about her day. While she asks him, how was your day? And he's like, good. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so what's wrong with them because women when they're mad at each other they, they punish each other by not communicating with one another right they don't talk to each other right men when they're mad at each other it's different they don't they usually get uh different ways of resolving it you know most people in prison are men are there's most people in prison are men 90 percent of people in prison are men and 90 percent of people who are open to therapy are women uh, why? Because women know that communication is important in resolving issues. While men, they don't know how to communicate. They don't have the same social skills as women do when it comes to communication. So how do you understand the differences? How do you learn that, okay, these are my weaknesses. I need to work on it. Look, I don't, I'm not a big communicator, so I better learn to communicate with my wife. I better learn to empathize. I better learn to not, when she's talking about her bad day, I don't interrupt her and tell her how you should fix it. Like, just listen to her, and if she wants a solution, she'll ask you for it. You, by default, we don't know these things. Right. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, gender psychology and, and recognizing the, you know, the patterns that tend to exist uh, is, is extremely crucial. And, of course, some of the examples you gave, I think, are quite you know, clear for a lot of people out there. There's always exceptions. You know, it's not like all men love sports in that way or all women aren't interested in the facts. I mean, you do have variation, but yes. certainly, you know, cross-culturally, you have very common trends and patterns and expectations of, of male and female. And, you know, a lot of data can suggest this, right? I mean, even in the work I do, the majority of people that reach out are the females, because I always say women are the relationship keepers. They're the ones that are more invested and, and um, 
uh, prioritize the health of the family, the health of the marriage, the health of the parents with the kids. Uh, men tend to be more reluctant when it comes to these things, right? Um, so this is something I've observed in, over years, right? So there are there's certainly uh, you know truths to to some of these things that you're saying, and I think it's so important for us to really yeah learn more about. What are the common male and female psychological patterns and behavioral patterns in general? And so many people have, they don't have a clue, you know, about any of this stuff that you're talking about. Um, and what's up, what else is sad that kind of, I think, brings us to another topic here is many parents don't talk to their parent, kids about this. You know, it's just like, don't talk to girls, don't talk to boys, haram, no boyfriend, no girlfriend. And then by the time they're done college, it's like, why aren't you married yet? You know, it's like I was I was told never to look or talk to anybody for years. And it was like a it was like a, you know, biohazard zone. And now all of a sudden I'm expected to be this like, you know, Romeo or Juliet. And like I should have all these skills to to begin a courtship process. It's so unrealistic. Don't get me started on sexuality, too. We don't even I know women and men that have gotten married. They didn't even have a conversation about it with their parents. They just, oh, you'll figure it out. Or Bismillah, we're Muslims. We don't talk about these things. I'm like, okay, well, if you're not going to talk to them about it and guide them through it, guess where they're going to learn? You know, from other people that don't have the same values of you or worse. Now you just click a button online and yeah, you're going to find everything you want. And usually in forms that are very unhealthy and damaging to one's soul, heart and body. Yeah. Unfortunately, they, when you when you close these doors because of cultural things. By the way, this is not I say cultural because even Aisha would explain to people the questions that she was asked because that's the only way we learned about the intimacy aspects and how he was intimate. The Prophet was intimate. It wasn't that these things were shied away from because this all encompasses all part of Islam. Exactly. You know, you have, the same way we have to know how to eat, we have to know how to be intimate. If everything has rules within Islam. It's not like, okay, we're just going to pretend like somehow mysteriously revelation is going to come in your head and you're going to know what to do, what to say, what you can't do, what you can't say. Right. It's so, so impractical and so dangerous. It is. And, yeah. and then you would think to yourself, okay, if my parents are not going to tell me, maybe I'll hear it at the Friday khutbah. You'll never, nope. ever hear it at the Friday khutbah. <laughs> nope. Okay, so where, so where am I supposed to hear this? Am I supposed to go get, sorry, supposed to go get like some secret book at the, at the, uh, at the Islamic bookstore? And then you're going to go and there's like some secret book in the back that you every time someone gets married, you're supposed to go get the book. And the guy at the, at the clerk is going to say, oh, you're getting married. Huh? You're reading the, <laughs> <laughs> the intimacy book, brother. No, it's like that doesn't, book doesn't exist in most masjids. So what, like, where am I supposed to learn? And then, as you said, you end up on the Internet and then you end up on these websites that you shouldn't be at. And then and then what do you what do you expect these kids to do? I mean, how do you expect them to I mean, this is the question they're most curious about, especially at that certain age. Of course, of course, and and we can't we can't associate sexuality with something disgusting. I'm sorry, but this is this is a very imbalanced and and misunderstanding of of Islam and what it teaches us. And as you said, Islam has solutions and guidance to navigate all of these very real human experiences and needs and it's so ridiculous that we just don't like the word sex it's like sex is something allah created us to to desire and want and to have and you're supposed to enjoy it within the parameters that allah guided us through why aren't we talking about it why don't we have islamic ed? i mean sure now you ha you're getting a little bit more 
of that stuff now, but it's still by no means a um, major component of Islamic educational institutions or curriculums in, in many local communities. It's just, you're not going to hear about it, right? All you're going to hear about is all the things you're not supposed to do, but then there's no way to, you, you need to actually fill that space with the proper guidelines, right? Like, like I always say, if it was haram to talk to men and women, then why does Allah and His Messenger give us guidance about how to interact with men and women if it's so haram or we're never supposed to do it? Yeah, sure, sex before marriage is considered a very risky and haram thing. But that doesn't mean that you're still not allowed to talk about sexuality and, and teach men and women about their bodies, what's happening, why they feel the things that they feel, why it's so common to want to have a partner and all these things. Because what ends up happening is you have youth running away with boyfriends and girlfriends and leaving home and going, well, you guys don't have any answers and you don't have any solutions either. So I'm going to go do my own thing because you guys seem backwards compared to everything else going on around me. So if we're not going to proportionately respond to the darkness and and the deviations that we are so terrified of around us, so to speak, then what do we expect? We have to meet uh, our community and the members of our community at that place with the proper Islamic knowledge and science necessary to give us a holistic and healthy human experience. Otherwise, you know, we can't sit here and complain about why our youth are going astray and why this is happening and why that, you know, it's like, well, hello, what, have, what, what role have we played in it? You know, it's not coming out of a vacuum. So, subhanAllah. Unfortunately, you know, we, cultural things, like, limits this religion. You know, we limit it because we throw our culture in there. But if you allow, if you pull the culture out and you allow the religion be, to be the religion, you'll see that it has practical solutions for everything. Everything. You know, and I, I felt that, you know, as we were talking about these subjects, as these many subjects we were talking about, some of the things that we wish that the young people who are looking to get married knew uh, I had a friend who contacted me and we were asking me questions and another friend would ask me questions. And then somebody told me, Ali, you should put all this into like record this because I, well, long story short, about a year ago, I made this series called find your half. It's on a website called findyourhalf.com. And basically I, I broke it down to four modules talking about four things that every person who's looking to get married should listen to before they get married. And the fourth module was only about intimacy. And I talked about all the aspects of intimacy. And I even talked about the haram halal aspect of it. All the things about intimacy that you have questions about, but you're too shy to ask. And I just, it's kind of like that book we were talking about. Like, oh, I, I, where's that book so I can learn <laughs> all these things about intimacy, how it works. I, I want to ask these questions. You don't even want to, like, if there was even a like, seminar about this stuff, I think even some people would just shy to even raise their hands, but they just hope someone asks that question. So I know how that is. So I said, okay, let me use this anonymous side of the internet to get these questions and answer these questions and do all the research and do it for them so they have an easy way in the privacy of their homes to listen to stuff because I want them to stay married, not just get married. The marriage, the project of Half Ardeen is to help people get married. Alhamdulillah has helped a lot of people get married. But it's not, it doesn't end there. I want the people to stay married. The only way they can stay married is for them to learn about these things that are attacking our our marriages, as we were been talking about unrealistic expectations, the cultural nonsense that we try to apply to them, uh, the lack of understanding of the differences between men and women. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we are dealing with um, the social media side of things we were talking about. So we have to educate our our young people and help them and answer their questions and show them this Islam is a true religion that has answers for everything. 
And I think when we do that, we're going to have less of that stuff of I just ran off with my boyfriend or I ran off with my girlfriend and you guys are backwards and et cetera, et cetera. So it's our responsibilities for those who have the knowledge and the tools to help educate these younger people. Um, and it, we, and uh, it's, it's tough. It is really tough when we're, I'm battling parents from a previous generation that are used to doing things in a certain way. They don't even, as you said, they don't talk to their kids about intimacy. Right. And and also to give our parents credit, you know, our immigrant parents especially, because I think that sometimes it comes across as we're just like, oh, my God, you guys ruin everything, right? But, you know, I was just saying this to a client the other day. I was like, imagine, Adi, that tomorrow you had to take your family and move to China and learn Mandarin and learn the processes of starting a life there, paying rent, getting a job, driving through the streets. And China obviously has a very different culture and religious worldview than yours. And now you're trying to survive and perpetuate success of your identity and values in this new environment. That's a very difficult thing to take on. And a lot of our parents had to do that. Right. And so, of course, naturally, they're coming from their own countries where many of these things probably aren't spoken about either. Then they find themselves in this almost like crisis management mode constantly of being in this new land and trying to preserve their identity. Of course, there's going to be, you know, they're going to fall short with certain things. Of course, they're not always going to have the tools and skills. They're just trying to survive and preserve their religious and cultural identity no matter what, even if it means being, you know, impractical, you know, immature, even a at times because they don't know any better. So I also just want to, you know, say may Allah bless our parents and the immigrants who came here and did their best. Um, some of them were much more successful than others when it comes to these topics, but others weren't. And uh, I also just wanted to put that out there as kind of to help us understand why our parents probably were the way they were when it came to a lot of things. They just didn't even have the tools or skills. It's not like they knew how to do all this and they were just, you know, choosing not to. They were just in their own, um, they were just in their own uh, struggle of, of survival in many ways. I agree 100%. You're very well, very well said, mashallah. So, Baba Ali, Brother Ali, it's been a pleasure to have you on today. A lot of exciting projects. I think you've had a wonderful journey. It's been really a privilege to have you on today. And I wanted to know if you had any closing comments or advice to share with our brothers and sisters out there listening. And uh, that would be really appreciated. Well, the last piece of advice I would have for our audience, inshallah, is that what we just mentioned just earlier with our parents, you know, as much as we sometimes are tough on our parents, sometimes they uh, are sometimes <laughs> apply some of their cultural things on us. We have to keep in mind that they do have certain things that actually does work. I mean, look at their generation. The marriages lasted 20, 30 years. Our generations the last two years. So they kind of know what they're talking about <laughs> for certain things. So when they... When you're talking to somebody and they see some red flags and you're just closing the door on them saying basically, oh, my parents don't know anything they're from old school. No, they sometimes there's knowledge that comes with that. There's experience that comes with that that you don't have. We have all the technology in the world, but we don't have the experience that our parents have. Right. So there's there's wisdom that comes with them. And at the very end, no matter what you have many different beliefs or different understandings that they do, they're your parents and they love you and they want the best for you. Right. So you have to keep that in mind and don't just take everything with a grain of salt. Um, actually sit there and like listen to them and see what what their points are. And if it's valid, take it. If it's not valid, then obviously don't take it. But I think a lot of times we we kind of shy away from this because our parents from, are from a previous generation. And we assume that, oh, because they don't know how to use Snapchat, they don't understand like how if I, this is the right person for me. No, that's two completely different things. Don't 
don't take their lack of understanding of technology away from their experience of life itself. Because with all due respect, we are not living life the way they did. You know, we're sitting on, on our phones and we're liking people on Facebook that we don't even know who they are. And while they really lived like marriage life, they have 20 years of experience living marriage life. So they have a couple of good things for us, alhamdulillah. So that's my piece of advice. No, that's great. And I'm just going to summarize that. Number one, I think the new generation of Muslims and the old school generation of Muslims, we should both see each other as valuable resources to learn. Whether it's skills, wisdom, experience, we're each going to have something to offer. And instead of competing with each other over what's right and what's wrong constantly, let's discover the truth and beauty together with sincerity and humility. And maybe a mom will learn how to use social media from her daughter and her daughter can get really good tips from her mom about what matters in a husband long term we have to have this dialogue we have to have this conversation and i think that's a really good reminder of how we can inshallah move towards a better community and better future muslim families exactly very well said are you ready for kareem's five fun questions yes i have been ready all my life let's do this (laughs) excellent question number one if you could only eat one fruit for the rest of your life which one would you choose? Uh, I would have to pick pomegranate. It's my favorite fruit. Uh, my parents, my wife knows that. My mom knows that. Every time um, it's in season, they buy like loads and loads of it. So I love it. You're so Persian. <laughs> Very Iranian. You can tell that. <laughs> MashaAllah. All right. Excellent. Question number two. What are two of your favorite films of all time? See, that's a tough one. I would have to go back because I'm a kid that grew up in the 80s. I would have to pick up the Karate Kid from the 1980s. Nice. And then the Back to the Future, I really like this as well, the 1980s. Yeah, so many good 80s classics, man. I, I'm, I'm thinking of like the Goonies. Yep. Um, I liked a lot of the fantasy too in the 80s, like uh, um, Labyrinth and, and Neverending Story, of course. Um, yeah, I'm trying to get my kids into it and they're talking about the Goonies. Like, what is a Goonies? <laughs> I'm like, okay, guys, just don't judge a book by its cover. Just, you'll love it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, how is it, like, trying to re- replay some of these classics with your kids? Do they, like, see it as just, like, black and white, like, old school films, or do they actually get into it? They say I'm from the olden age. So, <laughs> not the golden age, the olden age. Oh, those were the, from the olden days. The right. olden days, that's what they say. Right. I'm like, guys, it makes me feel like I'm from, like, 1920s or something. But I'm like, no, guys. And I actually made him watch E.T., and he actually loved it. Oh, wow. That's a great one. So, yeah. yeah, so I was like, dude, this is the stuff I grew up with. This is really cool. I may not have all the special effects, but the stories are way better in the 80s than it is right now. Oh, my God. You can't, you can't, <laughs> that's not even a discussion. Yeah, totally. That's why they redo the movies from those t- that time. You know, they don't, no one's going to redo the movies that we're making today. I'm sorry. <laughs> so. Right. And, they, and then they ruin them when they do them Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Question number three. If you could be any animal for a day, which one would you choose and why? See, most pick, people pick like a cat type of animal. It should be a lion or that. And I'll probably have to fall into that category. But I'll pick, probably pick a tiger. I like tigers more than lions. And that's because they are more adaptable. They can actually climb trees. Lions get stuck. They can't climb trees. Plus, it's hot in Africa. Oh. Tigers. <laughs> Interesting. I didn't. So tigers can climb trees, but lions can't. Yep, and they're much bigger cats. No one messes with tigers. Ah, do you think like a like an alpha lion could could win beat a an alpha tiger in a battle? Uh, I don't think so. I think the tiger would beat the lion. If you just look at the two animals side by side, it's no, it's not even a comparison. They're huge 
difference as far as weight and strength. Lions are yeah, lions are great when it comes to like packs. But tigers, if it goes on one on one, it's going to be tough. Nice. And you want like the classic lion, a tiger that everyone's probably picturing, like orange, or are you talking like you know those those exotic one, white tigers and stuff like that? I like I like the classic one. The lions, plus I, I feel like they're a little bit of a lazy animal. No offense for all the lions, <laughs> for all the lions that are listening tonight. I know I know a lot of lions maybe tuning in to the Coffee with Cream podcast, but um, they're pretty lazy animals. They only are awake for about four hours a day, and they and they make the women do all the work, which is kind of unfair. So <laughs> the lion just comes and eats. I'm like, what, what kind of are you king of the animal or the king of sleep? Sounds like a lot. Sounds like a lot of Muslim men and some, <laughs> some families, unfortunately. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why I went towards the tiger aspect. So I was like, okay. So you climb the tree and run away from your wife instead of making them do everything yeah, for you. You actually have to work. The tiger actually has to work. That just can't be lazy. Mashallah. Great response. All right. Question number four. Um, what's one of your favorite comedians of all time? Or another way is to phrase that, maybe your favorite comedy show of all time. Which, which one would you rather answer? I, I can actually probably answer both of them with, with one answer. And I, I really like Seinfeld because his comedy was very different than the typical comedians out there. And it was clean. And he was able to make people laugh. And he was able to make an entire show based on his own comedy. But if before Seinfeld, maybe maybe before all the scandals and nonsense... Uh, was uh, Bill, Cosby. Bill Cosby. And the reason I like Bill Cosby is because Bill Cosby's show at t- that time, again, another show in the 80s, became the number one show of all right. time. And what he did was he did he w- broke through the stereotypes. He broke through the typical idea of like, African-Americans being lazy and uh, criminals and all this numbo-jumbo and made them the two characters as a doctor and as a lawyer. Two high profile positions and they were successful and they didn't have typical quote-unquote ghetto problems that you that they try to stereotype african-americans as but rather they had normal problems living in upper class chicago so they broke the stereotype without saying hey and trying to be all defensive about it and i think that did that broke through to a lot of people especially how do you become a number one show of all time until seinfeld got here how do you become the number one show without even having racists watching your show so people don't even like african-americans were watching the show and liking it so they weren't black and white anymore they were americans and i I think i can relate a lot towards that especially us muslims today where we're trying to do things to so they understand we're we're no we just have different set of values but we're humans we're all human beings you know so exactly exactly no i can totally resonate and those both of those shows were like Shows that I would even watch with my parents, which I think says a lot because, I mean, Seinfeld sometimes got a little uh, PG-13, but it was still fairly clean. And um, But yeah, I totally resonate with that response. And your last question, Baba Ali, if you could have one superhero power, which one would you want and why? See, most people would probably choose the answer of being invisible. That's kind of weird, by the way. That's so funny. Everyone says that, but <laughs> it's it's not always the case. But go ahead. More, more introverts. <laughs> but I'm definitely maybe, yeah, and or flying. But maybe people don't want to sit in traffic for very long. But um, I I would probably choose time travel if that's even a superpower. <laughs> I would love to go back in time, uh, and I, I think to myself, so many things I would have done different from my childhood, and so many things I would have taken advantage of if I knew what I knew now. And those are kind of mm. things that kind of like. Uh, I kind of ponder upon now, like, wow, how would I do things different? 
if I was given the option to go back 20 years in time and knowing what I know now, what would I do different? How would I act? If I would lose a lot of the things that we take luxurious items that we have now, like the internet, phones, you know, all those things, but in exchange for time. And time is something we can never get. I mean, it was cool to fly and it was cool to be invisible, but time is priceless. Yeah. Would, now, would you want your superhero power to be able to take you to the future as well or just the past? Uh, I'm too worried about what's going to happen in the future. <laughs> <laughs> but if you go to the past, um, Ali, and then you change, you know, let's say some of the mistakes you made, then it, you, may not, you may come back to the present as a different person in a different place because all your mistakes also led you to the wisdom and the growth that you've attained in the present. Yeah, that's, that's a u- unique paradox, and that's kind of like, Maybe why there's wisdom that we don't have time travel. It's like every day your entire life changes. What? Who went? To, did you go back in time, honey? Oh, sorry. No, everyone using time travel machines and they keep messing up the future. And then, yeah, it makes a lot of sense that we can't go back in time. But it would be kind of cool just to go back and just experience that stuff again. Yeah. I definitely buy stocks in like Apple and Google too. <laughs> now that I know what I know. There was no right or wrong answers, and we really appreciate you sharing uh, your responses to Kareem's five fun questions. Thank you very much for having me. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. This is Baba Ali. Just want to let you guys know I recently finished this amazing, amazing program with Sister Haleb Banani. It's called Laugh and Learn. This is where they take a comedian and a psychologist and have them together on one digital format. I would like to say CD, but not really on CD. We're on like an audio program where it's really, really um, amazing information from Sister Hale. She's been doing um, both marriage counseling for and family counseling, I believe, for 20 years. And then Baba Ali, comedian for 11 years. And you put them together and you get really good knowledge and a funny way of hearing it. So if you haven't got a chance, make sure you go check it out. It's called Laugh and Learn. It'll be a great, great help for those who are married and get a good way to learn about the opposite gender and how they think and hopefully inshallah have a good good strong relationship inshallah Kareem Sirajuddin here thank you for tuning in please visit nurhuman.com to learn more about how I provide personal spiritual and relationship counsel and growth don't forget to visit coffeewithkareem.com to see the latest news and updates about this podcast please generously help sponsor this show to keep on going at patreon.com slash coffeewithkareem that's patreon.com slash coffeewithkareem